The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So we're back here with five more poems from history, as usual, starting with a poem from the 20th or 21st century and moving our way backwards through the language. The first poem tonight comes from Louise Bogan, who lived from 1897 to 1970, and she is one of those poets, like Elizabeth Bishop, who lived for a good deal of time but whose collected poetry probably only comes to about 200 or so pages. And as far as I can tell, Bogan's best poems are these short, haunting rhymes, like the one I'm going to read now. Uh, This one is called The Alchemist, and this is what it says. I burned my life that I might find a passion holy of the mind, Thought divorced from eye and bone, Ecstasy come to breath alone. I broke my life to seek relief From the flawed light of love and grief. With mounting beat the utter fire, Charred existence and desire, It died low, ceased its sudden thresh. I had found unmysterious flesh, not the mind's avid substance, still passionate beyond the will. And I should say that uh, this poem is one of the, or the first stanza of this poem is one of the epigraphs to my book, School of Night. I've read from that here and uh, was recently interviewed about the book. Um, And I'll post a link to that interview in the post description, but it's a wonderful uh, a wonderful six lines that Bogan does in that first uh, in that first stanza, and I will read it again. The hope of many a writer or creative person out there to find some sort of relief, some sort of escape from what Bogan calls the flawed light of love and grief, to imagine that it might be possible to completely run aground and just escape inside of the mind. And of course, that is what uh, the protagonist of my book, School of Night, does. He ends up disappearing into a fresco of Giotto's and uh, realizes only too late that uh, that really isn't going to solve much of anything either. But I love this first stanza, so I will read it again. This is Louise Bogan's The Alchemist. I burned my life that I might find a passion holy of the mind, 
thought divorced from eye and bone, ecstasy come to breath alone. I broke my life to seek relief from the flawed light of love and grief. And it's strange how these episodes of five poems are coming together, since as you'll see in a moment, um, the uh, that impulse uh, is right there in a few of the other poems. This next one comes from Elizabeth Barrett Browning from her famous uh, sonnets from the Portuguese. Elizabeth Barrett Browning lived from 1806 to 1861, and this is sonnet number 41. Let me see what the, uh, how many does she have in the sequence? She has 43. Is that right? 44. And this is what uh, sonnet 41 has to say from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I thank all who have loved me in their hearts with thanks and love from mine. Deep thanks to all who paused a little near the prison wall to hear my music in its louder parts. Ere they went onward, each to one to the marts or temple's occupation beyond call. But thou who in my voices sink and fall, when the sob took it, thy divinest art's own instrument didst drop down at thy foot to hearken what I said between my tears. Instruct me how to thank thee, O, oh, to shoot my soul's full meaning into future years, that they should lend it utterance and salute love that endures from life that disappears. As I was reading that, I wanted to, was wondering when these sonnets were written. Let me see if it says it here. Sonnets from the Portuguese. Um, of course, it doesn't give the date, uh, because it makes me think of Walt Whitman and the poem that became Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Uh, the idea of my soul's full meaning, oh, to shoot my soul's full meaning into future years. Uh, that is the message of uh, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And we can imagine Browning and Whitman writing uh, maybe around the same time and in many different ways. She died in 1861, so it's possible. Uh, I think Whitman wrote that in 1856 or so. Let me read it again because I think I did flub it slightly and I'll try to do a better reading of it this time. Sonnet 41 from Elizabeth Barrett Browning's uh, Sonnets. Uh, is that what it is? Sorry. It's one of those days. Sonnets from the Portuguese, that's right. I thank all who have loved me in their hearts with thanks and love for mine. Deep thanks to all who paused a little near the prison wall to hear my music in its louder parts. Ere they went onward, each one to the marts or temples occupation beyond call. But thou, who in my voices sink and fall, when the sob took it, thy divinest art's own instrument didst drop down at thy foot to hearken what I said between my tears. 
instruct me how to thank thee. Oh, to shoot my soul's full meaning into future years, that they should lend it utterance and salute love that endures from life that disappears. There we are. Now we will go to a completely other mind. And this is Mr. William Blake. Let me get his, his dates here. Uh, William Blake is 1757 to 1827. And here are just uh, a longer piece and a, and only a few lines from two of his two of his great long poems. Uh, the first this comes from uh, the poem Milton, and it was uh, written around 1804. The editor says and first engraved since that was Blake's method of publishing um, around 1808 to 1810, and it's just interesting. I think the very last. Um, the very last anthology episode that I posted uh, had William Wordsworth addressing John Milton. And we might consider what it is in future episodes, what it was about Milton that uh, held these poets in such sway. I think of how it's almost a cliche for those who love Whitman to write poems addressed to Walt Whitman. There is something about the tenor and the character and the personality and the voice of the poems that at least for, well, not, not just for American poets, but for many other poets, uh, you feel an intense connection and intimacy with them. And it seems that uh, individuals as disparate as William Blake and William Wordsworth uh, felt the same way. And uh, this is just about 30 lines from Milton. Uh, by William Blake, and this is what it says. I come in self-annihilation and the grandeur of inspiration to cast off rational demonstration by faith in the Savior, to cast off rotten rags of memory by inspiration, to cast off Bacon, Locke, and Newton from Albion's covering, to take off his filthy garments and clothe him with imagination, to cast aside from poetry all that is not inspiration, that it no longer shall dare to mock with the aspersion of madness, cast on the inspired by the tame high finisher of paltry blots, indefinite, or paltry rhymes, or paltry harmonies, who creeps into state government like a caterpillar to destroy, to cast off the idiot questioner who is always questioning, but never capable of answering, who sits with a sly grin, silent plotting when to question, like a thief in a cave, who publishes doubt and calls it knowledge, whose science is despair, whose presence to knowledge, whose pretense to knowledge is envy, whose whole science is to destroy the wisdom of ages to gratify ravenous envy that rages round him like a wolf day and night without rest. He smiles with condescension. He talks of benevolence and virtue 
and those who act with benevolence and virtue, they murder time on time. These are the destroyers of Jerusalem. They are the murderers of Jesus, who deny the faith and mock at eternal life, who pretend to poetry that they may destroy imagination by imitation of nature's images drawn from remembrance. These are the sexual garments, the abomination of desolation, hiding the human lineaments as with an ark and curtains, which Jesus rent, and now shall wholly purge away with fire, till generation is swallowed up in regeneration. And so Blake had his issues, as we know. For those who want to find this passage in the poem, in the full poem, Milton, uh, the editor here has uh, thankfully supplied that it comes from plate number 41 of Milton, lines 2 through 28. And here is just five lines from Blake's poem, Jerusalem, uh, written uh, the editor guesses between 1804 and 1807, and not engraved or published until 1818 or so. And uh, this is enough to get you through the day. This should be uh, on everyone's uh, wake-up call, or it should be on the magnet on the fridge that you see when you make your coffee. Uh, just imagine that. Uh, Mr. Blake says this, Trembling I sit day and night, my friends are astonished at me, yet they forgive my wanderings. I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. And that is worth reading again from Milton's Jerusalem. Plate 5, line 16 through 20. Trembling I sit day and night. My friends are astonished at me, yet they forgive my wanderings. I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God the human imagination. And that is a jolt of caffeine right there. I wanted to read something else from Blake, since this is, I think, the first time that I've read from him here. Um, and this is one of my favorite passages in any book. This comes from Peter Ackroyd's biography of William Blake. And this is where Ackroyd describes uh, the moment in time where the where uh, William Blake slowly came to accept that if he was writing for anyone other than himself, he was writing for posterity. And again, these uh, I, I just grabbed the anthologies that I've been using this afternoon and just went looking for poems. I didn't expect uh, not just to find echoes of Whitman and Barrett Browning, but also echoes of... Uh, echoes of Blake in both of them, if we think that he suddenly decides that he is only writing for posterity. Uh, and this is what P Peter Ackroyd has to say uh, about William Blake. 
His independence meant that he could preserve his vision beyond all taint, and that integrity is an essential aspect of his genius. But it also encouraged him to withdraw from the world of common discourse. Although these consequences were not immediately apparent, over the years his range of reference and illusion became more private and more confined. Out of his isolation he created a great myth, but it was one that was never vouchsafed to his contemporaries, and one that, even now, is generally neglected or misunderstood. William Blake's life is, in that sense, a parable of the artist who avoids the marketplace, where all others come to buy and sell. He preserved himself inviolate, but his freedom became a form of solitude. He worked for himself, and he listened only to himself. In the process, he lost any ability. He lost any ability to judge his own work. He had the capacity to become a great public and religious poet, but instead, he turned in upon himself and gained neither influence nor reputation. And I love that. Uh, that comes from Peter Aykroyd's book, Blake, A Biography. There are a few versions uh, or settings, I guess, of that book between hardcover and paperback in UK and US, but the one I have, it's from, that's on page 162. And again, I'm struck. Uh, he's talking about the marketplace. I go back to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's uh, poem, where the imagined listener has heard her poems, and then they went onward each to the marts or the temple's occupation. Uh, Blake would have nothing to do with the common uh, commercial market or the common religious market, you might say. And I'm struck when I listen to, or when I read that line, when I read uh, that passage from not just Blake, where he says his friends... Uh, trembling, I sit day and night. My friends are astonished at me. It, for one thing, I'm glad that he had friends who were sitting around with him. But I'm also struck that it is only uh, it is only poets who don't think that they will be read during their lifetime, uh, and it's only poets who are who, it's only poets who came to that conclusion after being rejected by the uh, poetry publishers of their time and the wider culture. Uh, it is only them who, who imagine these huge, uh, <clears throat> who imagine these, these huge tasks. I rest not from my great task to open the eternal world, to open the immortal eyes of man in words into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. And it strikes me that uh, while I'm no William Blake and don't pretend to be, uh, that is sort of the attitude I take to my own writing and to the preservation of the poetry and the writing and the art that I love uh, and preserve it here on this podcast. I was really struck uh, some months ago to come across an interview with the poet uh, Christian Wyman, who was once the editor of Poetry Magazine. And he mentioned talking to uh, the poet Donald Hall just before Donald Hall's death. 
Uh, Donald Ho was much older, and Christian Wyman, uh, the, the much younger poet. And I was struck that these two poets, who probably wouldn't have run into any um, very many rejection letters if they were sending out poems. They have a readership. They are widely published. Their books are well-known in many places. And I was struck to hear that these people, who were fairly successful in poetry, both admitted to themselves that uh, perhaps nothing of theirs would last. And to me, I, uh, my first thought was, well, why the hell are you bothering? But it struck me that uh, we are all sort of identified and determined by our situation. Uh, they had, and this is my assumption, but uh, Donald Hall, uh, up until he died a few years ago, and Christian Wyman, who was still around, um, they have had their moment in the sun as poets, as much as a poet can be well-known and respected in America today. And so they don't need to really think about whether or not what they do will last, or even whether uh, there will just be a scrap of, uh, of a quatrain of theirs that will live on without their name being attached to it. They don't need to worry about it. They've had their moment. I have not had that moment. Uh, William Blake did not have his moment. And so the both of us, and I'm sure many others, uh, we don't have to, but it's almost a natural knee-jerk response to make the vocation of poetry into something else. If no one's going to read me now, well, I better say that I'm doing it for eternity. And next here, for the second to last poem, we have... Uh, the poet who usually starts off the anthologies of American poetry, and that is Anne Bradstreet, who lived from around 1612 until 1672. And I was amazed to come across this poem by her, which wasn't published until 1678. And so you know by that that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't published in her lifetime. And this is a poem called The Author to Her Book just want to read the short biography here uh, about her, just so we, everyone seems to skip Anne Bradstreet because she is first in line in the American uh, poetry uh, anthologies, but it's worth hearing this again. Uh, she was born Anne Dudley in Northampton, England, and the first, Amer the first American poet had rheumatic fever as a child and contracted smallpox just before marrying the Cambridge graduate Simon Bradstreet. With John Winthrop's fleet in 1630, the couple sailed to America, where both Bradstreet's husband and her father would serve as governors of Massachusetts. Anne Bradstreet became the mother of eight children, and the author of a manuscript that her brother-in-law brought back to London and published without her knowledge in 1650 under the title The Tenth Muse Lately Sprung Up in America. Six years after her death, a second and enlarged edition of her poems appeared in Boston, and the poet John Berryman, who wrote a long poem called Homage to Mistress Bradstreet, uh, found it expedient to adopt her voice in that poem, saying, I didn't like her work, 
but I loved her. I sort of fell in love with her. And this is a wonderful poem, the author to her book. If you uh, took away the uh, slight archaic use of language here, this could very well be a writing prompt in any creative writing class in America today. To be an author, to write a poem addressed to your book, and, uh, and this is what it says. This is a, a wonderful bit of anxiety and uh, that many of us have felt the, the prison of print that you cannot change. And it's good to see that back in uh, 16, 1650s or 60s or so, even whatever, whatever we imagine the cliche of a Puritan woman living in Massachusetts being, and the mother of eight children, she still had time for this extremely modern anxiety. This is Anne Bradstreet, the author to her book. Thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain, who after birth didst my... Sorry, let me start that over again. The author to her book by Anne Bradstreet. Thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain, who after birth didst by my side remain, till snatched from thence by friends less wise than true, who thee abroad exposed to public view, made thee in rags halting to the press to trudge, where errors were not lessened, all may judge. At thy return my blushing was not small, my rambling brat in print, should mother call. I cast thee by as one unfit for light. Thy visage was so irksome in my sight. Yet being mine own, at length affection would, thy blemishes amend, if I so could. I washed thy face, but more defects I saw, and rubbing off a spot still made a flaw. I stretched thy joints to make thee even feet, yet still thou runnest more hobbling than is meet. In better dress to trim thee was my mind, but not save homespun cloth and the house I find. In this array amongst vulgars mayest thou roam. In critics' hands beware thou dost not come, and take thy way where yet thou art not known. If for thy father is asked, say thou hadst none, and for thy mother she, alas, is poor which caused her thus to send thee out the door. And you can see, again, all the cliches we imagine of a Puritan woman living in Massachusetts in the middle of the 17th century. You don't imagine that voice. Um, I think of, actually think of Flannery O'Connor as being uh, a... Uh, a relative of this tone of voice, where she says it's at one point, you don't finish a story, you don't finish a piece of writing, you say, to hell with it. Um, I think Anne Bradstreet, if she hadn't uh, feared a literal hell, may have wanted to say the same thing. It's a, a wonderful remark to come across, and it reminded me, and we come back to the monks again, the people who that I mentioned earlier, who would just like to escape the world and escape their bodies and just live in their mind 
For a long time, and I guess still now, one of my favorite things to do is to read about the lives of the early Christian monks. And I came across uh, this remark in uh, one of John Cassian's books. And again, the interconnections come. John Cassian is the name I used for my protagonist in School of Night. And John Cassian was a Christian monk, I believe, in the uh, in the third century or so, second or third century. And, and he went around interviewing the monks who were then living in Egypt, some of the earliest Christian monastics living in Egypt. And he came across one of them who said, uh, even when a person is staying in the desert or in his cell, it causes him to picture himself going around to different people's homes and monasteries and obtaining the conversion of the many who have been inspired by his imaginary exhortations. So I think of that with Louise Bogan's poem, The Alchemist, and I think of it again with, uh, I guess not just William Blake also exhorting the world, but also Anne Bradstreet, who was probably taught the virtues of humility and how humiliating it seems to have been to suddenly have been presented with a book of her poetry published without her knowledge, and just the strange impulses that, strange emotions, all of that would have brought up in her, should she feel proud of it. Uh, and rather than that, it seems she just wanted to go back and edit the whole thing. Uh, the last poem I will read tonight is by Henry Vaughan, and, and when I knew that I had Anne Bradstreet on board, uh, I had, uh, I chose this, I did choose this one on purpose. Henry Vaughan lived from 1621 to 1695, and it's possible that his poems, let's see, It's possible that his poems were actually contemporary with Anne Bradstreet's. This is his poem called The Book. And again, this sounds like a writing prompt. Write a poem about a book. Write a poem about the paper it was made on and what the paper was before it was paper. Write a, write a poem about uh, what the uh, leather cover was before it was the cover of a book, and so on. And for my money, at least when I was going through these anthologies, and then went through one just of metaphysical poetry, uh, Henry Vaughan was the guy to beat, at least for me. And I wasn't surprised to find that basically nobody else uh, thought that. So this is Henry Vaughan's poem, The Book. Eternal God, maker of all that have lived here since man's fall, the rock of ages, in whose shade they live unseen, when here they fade. Thou knewest this paper, when it was mere seed, and after that but grass, before twas dressed or spun, and when made linen, who did wear it then? What were their lives, their thoughts and deeds, whether good corn or fruitless weeds? Thou knewest this tree, when a green shade covered it, since a cover made, and where it flourished, grew and spread, as if it never should be dead. 
Thou knewest this harmless beast when he did live and feed by thy decree on each green thing, then slept, well fed, clothed with his skin, which now lies spread, a covering over this aged book, which makes me wisely weep and look on my own dust, mere dust it is, but not so dry and clean as this. Thou knewest and sawest them all, and though now scattered thus, dost know them so. O knowing glorious spirit, when thou shalt restore trees, beasts, and men, when thou shalt make all new again, destroying only death and pain, give him amongst thy works a place, who in them loved and sought thy face. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.